This is Macro Horizons, episode 25, The Longest Three Days, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 1st. And an observation that clearly those responsible for releasing the employment report have no interest in four-day weekends. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. The rally seems to have taken a breather, at least for now. Well, Ben, that's a great observation. We've had an impressive rally that got 10-year yields down to 2%. We've chopped around that level for a while. This is very constructive from a technical perspective. We're building in a volume bulge. The market profile details show that roughly 2.03% is the key level. And regardless of how we start the holiday-shortened week, I expect that we will find 2% has a gravitational pull all to itself. None of the incoming data has really shifted our fundamental understanding of where the market is at the moment. The real personal consumption figures came in at two-tenths of a percent in May. There was an upward revision to April, also to two-tenths of a percent, but that was less than was implied by the upward revisions that we saw in retail sales. All this suggests that the FOMC's focus on the return of consumption in the second quarter will remain topical as we enter July. From the perspective of the Fed, comments from Powell, combined with what we heard from Bullard, make it very clear that the only thing that's on the table in July is a 25 basis point rate cut. A 50 basis point move, highly unlikely. So it really comes down to pricing in the chances between zero or 25. While looking at the Fed Funds futures market, investors are content to price in fully a 25 basis point move, but we'll concede that it's a fairly binary outcome. We're either going to see the Fed comfortable initiating a fine-tuning rate-cutting campaign, or we're going to see the Fed delay that decision until later this summer. There was reasonably solid takedown to this week's supply, which is encouraging, especially given the outright yield levels. We might have expected even greater concessions and or tails at a few of the auctions, but the fact of the matter is the underwritings went relatively seamlessly coming at the intraday highs. This was presumably supported by the month-end, quarter-end first half of the year in demand. And the potential for that to reverse in the upcoming week is something that we certainly do have on our mind. The trade war saga remains very much in the limelight and promises a degree of uncertainty that will be with the market for a while. Even as the G20 dust will ultimately settle, there's still a lot of wood to chop in redefining the U.S.'s presence on the global trade stage. 
on net, our takeaway from the recent price action has confirmed our bias to see the cyclical re-steepening in the twos tens curve play out in a relatively short period compared to what's priced in in the forward curve. We would expect more steepening to occur more quickly. And in that context, we'll be watching the two-year yield, which is actively trading 65 basis points through Fed funds. Beyond that, it's pretty evident that there is a new yield cap for 10s and 30s. Call it 250 in 10s, 3% in 30s, although we struggle to see those levels being achieved anytime soon. If for no other reason, then we're right in the midst of the constructive seasonal patterns for the Treasury market that indicate 10-year yields could continue to rally well into the middle of September, putting 175.10 squarely on the radar. So was NFP really on the 5th of July? Well, my phone call into the BLS has yet to be returned. This really is BLS. Oh, John. The biggest question on our mind at this point is, what does it take to get the Fed to not cut rates in July? There is an argument that it's so well-priced in that it would be very difficult for Powell to walk back market expectations if he doesn't start much more aggressively with the rhetoric. Yeah, and I mean, there are a couple moving pieces that would all have to break one direction, which is kind of growth positive, and it would probably have to do so in size at that. And we will get updated reads on the ISMs in the not-too-distant future. You would need to see NFP probably not only go back to that 200-ish range, but more than make up some of the weakness we've seen. But more specifically, I think it'll be on the inflation side, Realized data would have to trend back towards the 2%, confirming the transitory nature, but also we'll have to see this in inflation expectations. The chance of all of these happening really seems quite low. I'm on the same page. I think it's highly unlikely that the Fed is going to be able to get through the summer without at least a 25 basis point rate cut. We've seen within the inflation series how shelter costs and OER continue to prop up the overall number. And even in that context, the overall number has been trending lower and lower. One of the interesting charts I stumbled across the other day compared the median price of new home sales to OER. Now, they track reasonably well together. There's about an 18-month lead time for OER to catch up with the relatively dramatic drop that we have seen in median home prices since the beginning of 2019. A few clients made the point, and it's a very good one, that median home prices within the new home series are transaction specific. So they're not an aggregate number. It just depends on what is actually being sold at this moment in time. And given the broader demographic landscape in the US, there has clearly been a progression towards smaller and presumably incrementally less expensive homes. So that might be some of the drop that we're seeing, but that still should flow through into the inflation series as the year progresses. Ian, to your point, I forget the exact wording, but the way OER is actually calculated is they just ask homeowners or they ask survey respondents, if you were to rent your home, what would you rent it for? And while you could see a composition effect into some of the data, presumably that should also show up in what people would expect to be able to rent their place for, aka owner-equivalent rent. Which is interesting because there's always this argument, well, if 
home prices go down, shouldn't that create upward pressure on the rental market? But if you actually look at the data, owner's equivalent rent and shelter costs to a large extent tend to flow together. And I think, John, to your point, that's exactly why. Yeah, I mean, first... I don't know how someone answers that with high precision, right? Supposedly, we think about stuff like this a lot, and it would be very difficult for me to throw out a precise number unless I'm already renting out a place. And in that case, you would want to round up. The other thing that I would point out is, you know, you imagine if you're a homeowner, you keep an eye on housing prices. And I think this provides a little validity to your thesis. You're keeping an eye on housing prices. Well, if my house price goes up, I must be able to rent it for more. If my house price is flat or going down, probably shouldn't be so optimistic. So to me, it's rather intuitive that they're pretty tightly correlated. And just circling back to some of the demographic challenges you highlighted, Ian, this last week within the disappointing Consumer Confidence Series, I think we saw it was the largest miss since February 2009 versus consensus. In the details of that data, what was particularly concerning is those people who were the least confident were the younger crowd, which is concerning because, as we've talked about a lot, the millennial demographic is really what is going to be instrumental in driving the next leg of home purchases, of consumption at this stage in the cycle, and economic growth more generally. So within a disappointing consumer confidence series, the fact that that cohort was the most disappointing within that is really troubling outside of just the headline miss. So, Ben, are you having a crisis of confidence? It's a little close to home. But to your point, I do think that this is very, very typical for a generational shift in consumption patterns. You have the baby boomers who are quickly shifting toward retirement. Consumption patterns drop. You have the millennials who haven't really benefited from the increase in equity prices since the crisis. They haven't really benefited from any appreciation via home ownership and the wealth effect there. And that's the group that we would typically expect to drive the next leg of spending. And I'd say it's additionally concerning as a proud card-carrying member of the millennial generation. The reality is student debt continues to be a binding constraint for some. There's a relatively large debt overhang that has led to a delayed household formation. And Ben, as you mentioned, kind of a less of a willingness to be more aggressive in some broader investments. So if you combined that with reduced sentiment, and at least for millennials anecdotally, this continues to restrict near and medium term outlooks, kind of makes sense that you'd see a pullback in consumption. So then the question that comes to my mind, because we're all on the same page that there's significant growth headwinds coming from the millennials consumption, why hasn't that flowed through to the real GDP numbers yet? Part of it is the fact that we actually have started to see some reasonable wage gains, whether or not they're limited to headline average hourly earnings or actually translate through to core spending has been a function of where we happen to be in the cycle and to some extent what's going on with energy prices. Yeah. And on the energy point, something that I've thought has been pretty interesting is the fact that we haven't really seen as significant a pickup in oil prices as I would otherwise assume, given what's going on in the Middle East. I mean, headlines on Iran seem to be coming more and more frequently and more and more alarming. Yeah, that's actually a very good observation, Ben. What struck me has really been a combination of two things in the energy market at this point. On the one hand, you do have the fact that a lower global growth outlook as a function of the trade war should keep demands on natural resources contained. In addition, the nature of production worldwide has shifted quite a bit, and the U.S. is now producing more 
barrels of oil per day than some of the other major exporters, including Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. I'd say another complicating factor is the value of the dollar. You know, we've had a recent very dovish pivot that pushed reels down, break-evens a bit wider, stocks higher, and intuitively, the dollar should also weaken on the margin. That incrementally should push back against the factors you mentioned, Ian, and increase energy costs, if anything, because of the pro-growth impulse from a dovish Fed. Once again, it doesn't seem like that has been sufficient as of yet. Perhaps it's a matter of time. Perhaps the reality is the headwinds facing the global economy at this point, coupled with the U.S. being a net producer of oil, are more than sufficient to overwhelm a weaker dollar. But isn't that all really just priced into the forward market? That's some forward thinking right there. Speaking of the forwards, one thing we've been talking about is now the forwards curve reflects a steepener. Well, it does follow intuitively that the forward curve should reflect a steepener at this point in the cycle. It's very clear that the Fed's next move is going to be a rate cut rather than a rate hike. And the implicit question that we really focus on is how will the market play out in relation to the forwards curve? At the moment, we do think that the curve is going to re-steepen, but re-steepen more quickly than is currently priced into the forwards market. Yeah, I'd agree with that. If you look at the timing of some of the steepening priced into the forwards, it directionally is steeper, but it's relatively modest even in a three or six month forward window. John, as you continue to point out, there is an infinite number of combinations in the forward market. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it's just a different way to look at spot rates. Spot rates are a combo of forwards, and really all they reflect is the expected path of short rates and the expected path of policy over that period. With the Fed telling us they're going to cut rates, it makes intuitive sense to expect lower rates in the future versus now. That should be additive to some of the steepener plays that we like, such as, say, twos, tens. Yeah, and a theme that we talked about a little while ago that once again played out in this most recent two-year auction was if you want a position for the steepener, it makes more sense to roll the positions both in twos and tens. And the June two-year auction was a perfect example of that. The auction stop once again came below the old on the run. And if you're in a steepener, that's just a basis point or two that's going to add to the P&L. Returning to the topic of the Fed, one of the issues that has been topical in the recent week or two is this discussion around how could the Fed possibly ease at this moment given we have an extremely tight labor market, equities are at record highs, GDP continues apace. What are they thinking? So we've talked before, and I think this is still true, that inflation expectations really matter as well as these global headwinds. But I guess I'd introduce a third potential nuance here. The reality is, for several decades, the central bank has really struggled to achieve a soft landing in the economy. It's something that they're actively trying to do, you know, prolong or whatever wording Powell's using currently is. And perhaps what this means is, you know, focus on cementing inflation expectations near 2%. Don't be afraid of easing, even though you have relatively high equity prices and a tight labor market. The reality is, if you continue to only follow historical precedent, it's not unreasonable to therefore expect a similar outcome, which equates to recession. What about the 90s? Well, the 90s, I would argue, did extend, but it was also in the context of a huge productivity upswing via computers. But it also just kind of led to an equity bubble and uh, pushed a recession back a little bit longer. That's not really a soft landing. That's just timing the hard landing. A, a true soft landing would be converged to equilibrium 
and kind of keep going, at least in economic theory. So essentially, John, what you're saying is that the Fed has a very clear incentive to cut rates sooner rather than later if they want to avoid a comparable outcome to what we saw in the beginning of 2000. Yeah, something like that. The risk of trying to recreate the 2001-2007 experience is you're behind the curve, you're not providing enough monetary policy accommodation until too late, and you can't avert a recession. So if you are trying to achieve something different, maybe you do need to have a different strategy. The other thing that I would add is we have continued to see a divergence between the highly skilled, highly paid worker and the lower end of the spectrum. And with the Fed being more proactive to get in front of any significant slowdown, that is an attempt to shield that subset of the labor force from a potentially damaging round of layoffs. And all else equal, this to me at least suggests that maybe a 50 basis point rate cut is on the table at the end of July. And I would say that with a little more conviction, aside from the fact that this past week we had Bullard, the most dovish member of the committee, come out and openly say that 50 basis points of easing is not warranted at that time. And you have to imagine his hesitation around that is centered exactly on what we've been discussing, which is the potential formation of an asset bubble or something akin to what we saw in 2000. I tend to agree with you, Ben, but I still think that we only get 25 basis points because I think that the debate at this point on the committee is whether or not they need to start any series of fine-tuning cuts now or delay it to a point in the future and see how things trade out with the trade war and the potential return of inflation. But in either case, you still think 25 basis points is going to be the go-to? Given the relatively low outright level of policy rates, I think 25 basis points today is comparable to what 50 or 75 might have been in the 90s. I would also say I think the market is kind of pricing this dynamic. Certainly it's possible we get no cut in July Maybe it's even theoretically possible to get 75 as an extreme. But really, a lot of the debate is between 25 and 50. And uh, Ian, I think you're absolutely right. The decision will be path dependent on the aftermath of the G20 meetings, any trade truce or something that might may or may not develop, but also the economic data. What's going on with inflation? We'll get an updated month of readings. If you see further deterioration and a true capitulation in sentiment starting to be masked in risk assets, you can see the door open for 50. Absent that, yeah, 25 seems like the most prudent base case. And John, to your point, I think Powell did an extremely good job of creating a contingent scenario in which if we don't see clear resolution on the trade side, reducing the uncertainty combined with an uptick in inflation, the Fed is simply going to have to ease. And another near-term event risk, I think, is Friday's NFP number. Given what we saw last month, another substantial disappointment or any more worries on one of the primary pillars of strength in the real economy, that again is going to be a check mark in the 50 basis point column. No, John, the BLS still hasn't called back. It's on Friday. Wait, John, aren't you out on Friday? I got a thing. Millennials. In the week ahead, we get a variety of inputs in terms of real economic data. There's ADP, we have the ISM series, keeping in mind that the regional Fed surveys have been on the disappointing side, to put it mildly, which suggests that on the margin, the 51.2 consensus is going to be challenging to achieve. If anything, we'd put a bit of a downward bias on that. Thursday's Independence Day holiday represents a market closure. 
and while July 5th is a full trading day, we expect staffing levels to be relatively light. Nonetheless, we do get NFP on Friday, which suggests that any outsized move will be relatively short-lived. In fact, the July 3rd ADP release will probably set the most durable tone for the Treasury market, particularly given the fact that May's ADP disappointment portended a weak BLS number. While we'd like to say that slow summer trading conditions are upon us, we expect that we'll still be several weeks away. If for no other reason, then we have the pivotal FOMC meeting at the end of July. When looking at the technical profile, we've been very encouraged to see the overbought stochastics come out of extreme levels being worked off in part by a consolidation and part by a bit of a backup in rates overall. For context, Treasury yields are still relatively low, particularly given where effective Fed funds are, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to move even lower from here. In debating this issue with clients and internally, we're comfortable with the notion that this cycle will see new record low 10-year yields, perhaps even sooner than the market is anticipating. Recall in 2016, 10-year yields got as low as 1.32%. At this point, with 10s hovering around 2%, it's not inconceivable that once the Fed starts its rate-cutting campaign, whether that's at the end of July or later, we'll see a repricing, materially lower, of the entire yield curve. The offset, and this is where it becomes more art than science, will be what happens with inflation at a time when the Fed is being more proactive in attempting to get in front of a material slowdown. In an environment in which the FOMC delivers two or three 25 basis point rate cuts matching effectively what's priced into the market, we could actually envision a situation where 10-year yields drift north of 225 if and when we see realized inflation start to tick higher. This is the essence of the debate that is going to be playing out in the market over the course of the next three or four months. Has the Fed engineered a soft landing? Will investors need additional compensation to go further out the curve? And has the Fed truly changed its relationship with inflation by shifting to a fully symmetric approach? We've reached the point where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. And we're eagerly looking forward to fireworks, barbecues, and pretending that Friday, July 5th, is in fact a true market holiday. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.